0: This is another Bottle Down on Co-op Radio, KOOP, Hornsby, Austin, 91.7 FM, and KOOP.org. I'm your host, Mark Rayshap, here to appreciate wines from all over the world, and to talk with Austin's leading wine professionals, from winemaker to sommelier and everyone in between. Now it's time to put another bottle down. All right. Good afternoon, Austin. Thank you so much for tuning in. We have a great show for you today. We are going to be kicking off Texas Wine Month. Uh, October is what we know as as Texas Wine Month. There's a ton of of festivities going on. We've got the Passport Program, which is going on. And and first up on the show, I'm going to have January Wiese, who is the Executive Director of the Texas Hill Country Winery Association. We're going to be talking about the Passport Program they have going on. And then uh, later in the show, Louis Dixon, who is owner and winemaker at Cruz de Comal, one of the real, real important voices in natural winemaking in the state of Texas. He's doing all natural fermentations no additives his wines are enchanting and um i'm really excited for our conversation he is uh as i said one of the big proponents in the texas wine industry so um we've got a great show for you don't go anywhere we'll be right back with january All right. Before we get into our interview with January Wiese from the Texas Hill Country Winery Association, I wanted to send out uh, my thoughts and prayers and love to all of the, the wineries affected by the California uh, fires that have been going on. There has been a lot of devastation. Uh, we're still assessing all of the damage to the wineries and uh, and vineyards. I, th- I know that uh, Signorello and Paradise Ridge have been um, pretty much completely. Completely destroyed uh, there's been a lot of damage to the, the grounds of wineries um, although I, I think a lot of other wineries are, are kind of saved in in part but again we're still assessing the damages and uh, later in, in either a week or, or, or two weeks I'll do uh, maybe a special on um, what is going on and in the follow-up and the aftermath of the fires but um, we're really thinking about you California Napa Sonoma County and boy even in Orange County and Southern California there's been uh, it's been pretty crazy so stay tuned stay tuned for that and the coverage that we will bring you here on another bottle down and co-op radio Um, well let's turn to something a little bit more upbeat here Texas wine month uh, January we see Uh, thank you so much for being on the show
1: Thanks for having me, Mark.
0: Yeah, this is a pleasure to to get you in here. So you're uh, the, the Texas... Tell us first a little bit about the Texas Hill Country Winery Association. Did I get the title correctly?
1: Yes. Okay. Yes, that's perfect. So Texas Hill Country Wineries, we are a nonprofit organization made up of 50 member wineries across the Hill Country. They started in 1999 with about eight wineries and have slowly grown over the years to 50 now. Wow. We put on four consumer events a year and then we do which we'll talk about in a little bit and then we do um education industry educational events a conference winemaker and grower field days tasting room manager luncheons and kind of support our industry that way
0: wow very very important stuff the the uh, hill country winery symposium the symposium in january is always a, a really important thing for the industry i know uh, winemakers love to come together and chat and uh and learn the latest in, in technology and all of that kind of stuff uh wonderful yeah
1: Thank you.
0: What, um, so what are some of the, the larger consumer events that, that you do? And then we can maybe end in, uh, in Texas Wine Month here, this yeah. passport program.
1: Perfect. So we do, like I said, the four events a year. We do one in February, Wine Lovers Celebration. We do the Wine and Wildflower event in April, which celebrates, of course, the wines and the new growth and the beautiful wildflowers that you can drive around and see throughout the hill country. And then around the holidays, we do the Christmas Wine Affair. And then then we end. Well, we start this month, I guess, with Texas Mine Month. Yeah.
0: Wow. Wonderful stuff. And and you've seen the the hill country industry grow leaps and bounds. Can you speak a little bit to that as far as um, what you, what you've seen? And and of course, you're 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 an industry nonprofit. Um. And but but really have your heart on, your your finger on the pulse of of the industry out in the hill country.
1: Yeah, we actually, so when the association started with nine wineries in 1999, when I came on board in 2012, we had 32 wineries, and then we grew to 42, 46, and now the 50. Um, Three years ago, when we did an industry survey amongst ourselves of the vineyards in the Hill Country, we had just over 700 acres. Now we're at 850, and we just... Um, wineries are popping up left and right along two ninety
0: right. so so you're actually surveying the the vineyards as well to know what grape varieties are planted because that's somewhat of an elusive thing. I try and keep my finger on the pulse there, but you know, it's not necessarily reported to the USDA or you know who who actually uh, monitors that is somewhat of a of a tricky thing and then whether they're producing or not is another question. So you try and have a little grasp as to what what people have in their vineyards.
1: We try. We <laughs> <laughs> really dry. That is one of the things we're working on as an industry with um, Texas Wine and Grape Growers Association, Texas Hill Country Wineries, the High Plains Winery Wine Growers Association, and Go Texan is we want to know how much acreage we have across the state in each area, what varietals are planted, and we'll use that for consumer education, media, and just overall marketing, but for ourselves to know where we're going and where we came from.
0: Right. And what's really fascinating is not always are the grapes that people are most excited about or are in vogue are very widely planted, and so there's a real big disconnect there. Uh, but, But I always look for those resources, so I think it's a wonderful thing. Yeah. Um, tell us, so October wine month, uh, uh, Texas wine month in October, uh, kicks off and, uh, festivities are kind of already going on. And I should say that folks can get a lot more information at your website, TexasWineTrail.com, And there's an interactive map, uh, a lot of resources there, right? As we're talking, people can follow along.
1: There are. So we list all of our member wineries on there. We have our events calendar that shows our upcoming events. The wineries have a winery event calendar, so they post on their um, wine and cheese pairings and wine dinners and live music and all that stuff throughout the month. Um, Then the interactive map, we've got a printable map. We've got an FAQ page where you can kind of see, you know, what to expect when you're out in the hill country.
0: Right, right. Mm. So this passport program, so folks can uh, find information and, and uh, there are passports available on on the web page and then that uh, gives access to tastings at the at the winery etc at the wineries etc right so it really gives a, a good picture of what wine what the wineries are doing
1: yeah so texas wine month it, it was actually started about 18 years ago it was a proclamation um, the idea was from Commissioner Combs and then the proclamation was signed by Governor Bush at the time and so we've been celebrating that since 1999 as an association. Wow. Currently we have 46 wineries participating in Texas Wine Month Trail. It is all month long so you can I tell people if you don't have a job you could go every day of the week if you <laughs> wanted to. So not, not,
0: not just weekends. It's No, it's, yeah. every day because wow. we
1: want to celebrate this entire month. And so 46 wineries and your passport Gets you four four tastings at each winery a day. And that really is a good way to explore the wineries that you haven't explored yet. Uh, If you haven't been out to the Hill Country, it's kind of just an easy guide to get out there and, and taste some new wines.
0: Can you give us some, uh, some some recommendations as to how, how you best enjoy, uh, you know, visiting the wineries or how, how many to plan in a day or, you know, maybe some recommendations not to overload or to get the best experience you could possibly have?
1: Yeah. So the Hill Country is actually, it covers 9 million acres, which is 15,000 square miles. So we have wineries that are 150 miles apart. And we don't want you to think that you can start in Austin and then go all the way to Fredericksburg, and then all the way up to Lampasas in a day because it's a lot of driving and a lot of wine. Right. So on our website, on the map page, we have some suggested day trips where you can visit a group of wineries in Dripping Springs, a group of wineries down in Comfort, New Braunfels, a group of wineries in Lampasas, Marble Falls, Fredericksburg, etc. And we recommend about four to six wineries a day. The Passport actually is capped at four because we really want to make sure that we're promoting responsible right.
0: drinking. Right. And, and something that I am a big proponent of as well uh, because you, you can't experience so responsible drinking is one mm-hmm. thing and respect for the wineries is another thing that you want you want to listen to their message and their story as well, right?
1: That's true and one of, yes one of the other reasons that we capped it at four is because we don't want people rushing in and out trying to get to all 46 wineries <laughs> right in a weekend. Right. We want you to take your time and enjoy the wines and enjoy the people and enjoy their story and just kind of get a feel of what that winery is all about without yeah. rushing in and getting your taste and then jumping in the car and heading to the next Right.
0: One. And I always say a lot of uh, research beforehand goes a long way as far as are these wineries producing some of the wines that, that you like or have they gotten um, you know recommendations or, or uh, are they doing something that aligns with what you want? But then you shouldn't limit yourself too, right? You want to open yourself to other experiences.
1: Exactly. And that's what our 50 members do. There are 50 different experiences across the hill country. And so if you are looking to take a group of ladies, you know, out for the weekend, there's a group of wineries that will fit for that. If you're taking your dog, we have a list, you know, that are of wineries, wineries that are dog friendly. Wow. Exactly. Very cool. Um, You know, wineries that have holiday events or if you're looking for food and wine pairings and we can help with that on the website. And if you don't find it there, you can always contact us and we can help you put together a trip that fits you and your group.
0: Well, wonderful. Texaswinetrail.com. Tom, any, any final thoughts before we get on uh, with celebrating Texas Wine Month?
1: I don't think so. <laughs> okay. Just come out to the Hill Country and visit us and try as many of our wineries throughout the month that you can.
0: Absolutely. Well, January, January, we see, thank you so much, Executive Director of the Texas Hill Country Winery Association. Thank you for being on the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: We're going to take a short break and uh, be back with Lewis Dixon from Cruz de Comal Winery. Thank you so much for tuning in. And, Lewis, thank you so much for being here.
2: Thank you, Mark. Happy to be here.
0: Absolutely. Well, um, I guess, can you give us the, the broad brushstrokes of, of what Cruz de Winery is, is all about? And then we'll delve into some particulars.
2: Yeah, I, I started off uh, getting interested in wine even when I was in high school. started reading about it and collecting wine uh, when I was in college. Um, I owned an interest in a winery in California in the 80s for about 10 years in the Santa Cruz Mountains. Um, and I slowed down practicing law in the late 90s, uh, went to France for a couple of years, and then came back in 2000 and planted my small three-acre vineyard in 2000. And uh, when I uh, thought about making wine, I called upon my dear friend, Tony Katuri who owns Katuri Winery in Sonoma. And you mentioned earlier about the fires going on out there, and he's still waiting to find out what his fate is but anyway he came out in 2001 uh, several times a year for 10 years and showed me how to do this and when i decided i'm a native texan i love the hill country um, but when i decided to make wine i wanted to make it his way and that's completely natural completely unprocessed and that was sort of the the impetus for it in my philosophy and i've, I've followed in his footstep
0: yeah. where Was there a, a consideration as to where the vineyard was? I mean, did you just own property there and, it, and you did some tests on it to, to make sure it could bear fruit, etc.? Uh,
2: good question. A lot of people that have vineyards sought out that property expressly for a vineyard, not me. Uh, I bought my ranch in 92. There was absolutely nothing on the property uh, with the idea of having a place just to get away from Houston and, and enjoy the hill country. And when I got back from France, that's when I decided, or when I was over in France in the late 90s, I decided to put the vineyard in because I thought there was such similarities in the soils and the terrain uh, and the environment. Uh, and then once I got into doing it, I found out that soils and uh, things aren't particular. I mean, they're important, but they're, <laughs> they're, not, they're not as important as you might think. So, yes, I had all the soils tested and things, and I got the green flag from A&M, but once I got into doing it, I found out there were other priorities. Right. What did you, at that time, what did
0: you decide to plant there? I mean, there's so many uh, varieties that you can plant and so many variables that you can address.
2: Uh, Good question. I I didn't decide what to plant. I let what I planted decide for me. So I started off in 2000 with 11 different types of vines or plants. I wanted to see firsthand what wanted to be there without having to keep it on support with chemicals. So I planted 11 different types of grapes. Uh, I put nothing on them. Uh, I didn't put any fertilizer. I didn't put any pesticides. I didn't put any uh, life support chemicals on them. I wanted to see which ones were the survivors, and I did. About five years later, I saw which horses I wanted to ride.
0: And which were the what, what, so? What were your discoveries
2: for, for me? I, I started off with Black Spanish and Blanc du Bois. Uh, those are the ones that ultimately uh, proved to be the children that didn't want to run away from home, so to speak. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, and you know, it's easy—it's easy to plant vines, but it's not as easy to harvest beautiful fruit from the vines. Uh, vines are happy just about anywhere, but the, the proposition of getting beautiful fruit reliably from a particular vine, uh, you have to be a little more studious about that. Yeah.
0: And the first step in that is to, is to pick the right grape varieties for your, your climate, everything. And Black Spanish and Blanc de Bois were, were the ones that kind of proved a little bit more, but you do have some Bordeaux varieties and some other, some other stuff as well, or, or no? Uh,
2: I did when I started off, but I've, uh, my vineyard is completely dedicated to Black Spanish and Blanc du Bois, okay. yeah. uh, as I said, both of those uh, vines are resistant to a very deadly disease called Pierce disease. Um, so I don't have to do anything to to preserve them to give them an opportunity to live because of that. That's not to say that they're problem free. That's not the case. But I'm ahead of the game, in my opinion, because I don't have to rely on pretty harsh chemicals to keep them in the game.
0: Yeah. Can we take a few moments uh, to really delve into what Black Spanish and Blanc de Bois are? What are their What are their characteristics? What they're they're known They're maybe not so well known in the wine loving community as broadly as Cab and Merlot and and all of those Vitis Vinifera varieties, but they are. Uh, I think they're very Texan, even though Blanc de Bois doesn't quite come from Texas, but uh, it thrives here. And um, let's let's talk about those varieties.
2: Yeah, let's take uh, Blanc du Bois first. Uh, one thing that tickles me about, about Blanc du Bois and Black Spanish is that a lot of people have not heard of them. Um, and it's fun to present somebody with something that's really new. You know, you, you think back 30, 40 years ago, nobody had ever heard of a grape called Pinot Grigio. And now it's on every grocery store shelf <laughs> and every convenience store, gas station shelf in the country. But Blanc du Bois, interestingly enough, was started uh, at the University of Florida. They started in 1946. Um, they started uh, crossing native vines with what I understand is an Italian clone of Muscat. Uh, and then in the late 60s, uh, maybe by 1970, they were propagating that, calling it Blanc du Bois. And they named it, the, the Bois means wood, but they named it after a... Uh, a, a fellow that came from France that lived in Florida in the 1800s uh, that planted grapes in Florida and would enter these, uh, his wines in competitions even in Paris and would win uh, awards for it. So they named it in honor of him. But the, the muscat and the parentage really carries over to the wine. It's very spicy, very citrusy. Uh, when, if you have enough of it, then Blanc de Bois is Blanc de Bois, and you understand what it tastes like. But for those who don't know about it, uh, I would say it's sort of a cross between Sauvignon Blanc. It has some spicy characteristics of Riesling, maybe a little, a little bit of uh, Gewurztraminer, uh, maybe even Marsan Roussan, uh, creaminess. Uh, yeah. depends on how it's made, but it's very, very interesting wine and i make a a dry crispy wine with it i've also made sort of a muscat bone de Venise fortified wine with it i've made uh, this year i'm making my take on a vermouth with it uh, so it's it's you can do a lot of things with it. Yeah, and it's
0: uh, I'm a huge fan. I've I've featured the grape on the show before, doing uh, blanc de bois with several uh, producers, and I think that your point that you talk about that there is a wide variety of styles. It could it could be incredibly bright and super acidic, uh, almost like a northern Spanish, um, you know, chocolatey That might be a little obscure for people, but have this really bracy acidity, or it could be. More more aromatic or it could be, you know, anywhere in between. Is that what you find in the vineyard or do you know kind of the style that comes from your vineyard?
2: Well, I think I have a pretty dependable style from my vineyard. Uh, My soils are uh, are sort of loamy clay, uh, but underneath that a foot or so is a lot of caliche, so I get this wonderful minerality. But uh, I find that, uh, that it has really great acidity. And of course, we can talk about this more, but the way I make wine by letting it make itself and doing native yeast fermentations, it really preserves a lot of the acidity. My fermentations take months as opposed (laughs) to five or six days. Uh, And so uh, a combination of what I have on my soils and the way I make the wine makes a very uh, zippy, if you will, uh, crispy wine, uh, if that's the style I'm doing. And also I've done other things, as I said. With fortified wines, that acidity matches really well with that higher
0: alcohol style.
2: Absolutely, and yeah. that's why a lot of people say, you know, I don't normally drink after-dinner wines, but I love this because it's not cloyingly sweet, and that's because of the acidity yeah. that's in cadence with the fruit. As as far as black Spanish goes, it's, it has sort of an obscure history, but from everything I've read, I think it was Um, sort of a happenstance between vines that were brought over by early french settlers who settled in the area of what's now savannah georgia that was in late 1600s early 1700s and of course they were uh, also they would they would work with the vines for a while and then they would fail and i think over time they just whether they bred them intentionally the settlers or whether it was an uh, just an accidental Cross breeding, hybridization uh, of of the vines. Uh, nobody really knows, but I think it's uh, it has ast- a- attributes of American uh, vines, uh, uh, but it also has a lot of attributes of Venefra, European vines. Uh, the The fruit itself looks a lot like Venefra. I'd say, uh, Black Spanish fruit. Uh, looks a lot like Cabernet.
0: And we should say, uh, for folks who don't know, Vitis vinifera is the variety of grapes that we, we uh, that are is the European variety. the The most common ones that we see on the on the shelves. And then Estivelas or Labrusca are your Native American vines. Right. Uh, I find it very fascinating that Black Spanish has you know the history is obscure, but there there is undeniably a link with the island of Madeira, which is Portuguese owned and uh, and, and it's still planted there even though it's, it must have hybridized here in the U.S.
2: Some people have uh, theorized that after uh, some of the hybridized uh, cuttings uh, were discovered that those may have been taken back to Europe, and that could be what's, what's in Madeira. Right. Another interesting thing about black Spanish is that it's what the French would call a tinturier grape, which means it has colored juice. Uh, a grape that I love a lot, and it was one of the 11 that I started off trying to see if it would work, is Alicante Boucher, which is also a Tinturier grape. So, when you, most red wine making grapes, uh, when you harvest them, if you pinch the, the berry, it's going to be uh, clear or maybe slightly salmon colored. Uh, red wine gets its color from extended fermentation in contact with the skins and it extracts the pigments from the skins. Black Spanish, like Alicante Boucher, when you pick it, if you were to pinch the berry, it's sort of raspberry colored. Makes a beautiful rosé just in and of itself without any skin contact. It's kind of a red wine drinker's rosé, if you will. And I've also used that rosé to make sort of my take on a vermouth. Um, And of course, obviously, they call it black Spanish for a reason. Uh, in a good year when things are allowed to ripen properly the skins are really dark they're black they're they're purple blue black colored and when you leave obviously when you leave that in contact with the skins it's going to go from raspberry juice to very purple yeah
0: Wow, and that's and, and that is and still the acidity is maintained, although you know we attribute that also to winemaking, but it has kind of this racy acidity that, um, that is lovely where you can get the ripeness of the fruit and still that acidity to be maintained, right?
2: Exactly, and the, the natural acidity uh, we can get into this later, but I never add anything to the wine. I don't add uh, uh, tartaric or citric acid from that 40-pound bag over there in the (laughs) corner. I rely on the natural acidity, and that is one of the five natural preservatives of wine. You've got natural acidity, particularly in the case of red wines, tannins that come from the skins and the seeds. And very important with my wine, higher than normal levels of CO2 in solution. When you ferment a wine... The byproducts of fermentation are alcohol and CO2, which is a natural inert gas. Since I don't add sulfites or anything to my wines and don't move the wine around a lot, I don't displace the CO2 or a lot of it that's in solution. So that's the third natural preservative in my wines. They're woven together, if you will, with threads of a beautiful natural inert gas. It truly is a preservative. The fourth thing is sediment. When it precipitates in the bottle, that's part of the wine's armor of self-preservation. And the last thing is alcohol. Alcohol is a preservative. All wines have alcohol, but if you work backwards from alcohol, most wines are put through a process today that relieves them of some, if not all of the other four preservatives.
0: Right, and and that's always a something hard for folks to understand. They think, oh, if there's sediment, and the wine is somehow faulty. And I bet that that's something that you battle with. And that's a nat- The natural wines are going to have that that sediment. And um, can you talk to that?
2: Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's if you don't fine or filter wines, uh, you, they're going to precipitate sediment. Uh, if you don't, you can filter most white wines all day long, but if you don't find them, they will precipitate sediment. And that's, that's okay with me. In real life, I was a trial lawyer, and trial lawyers like evidence, and when I have sediment in my <laughs> wine, that's my evidence. So, uh, but it's, what I do is uh, I stand my wines upright. I prepare for their service, and if, if it's a wine that's older and has sediment, I stand them upright and give them a chance to settle out, and then I will decant them pouring the wine through a funnel and pouring the tail end of the bottle through a coffee filter that I put in the funnel. I do that with, with uh, red wines. So they're stored on the side
0: or upside down or where the cork is uh, submerged because that's important. And then and then as you said, as you get ready for service, you stand them up and decant. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Lewis this is wonderful conversation and we're gonna get in the second half of the show we'll get into uh, your 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 philosophies on natural winemaking we've kind of touched on them a little bit but we'll really dig in uh, if you're just joining us this is co-op radio koop 91.7 FM and koop ORG streaming all the time uh, thank you so much for joining us we are going to take a short break and we'll be back with Lewis Dixon owner and winemaker of Cruz de Comal my name is Mark Markray and this is another bottle down co-op radio folks we're here talking about wine texas wine celebrating october being texas wine month and uh speaking with lewis dixon who is owner and winemaker of cruz de comal winery uh, in the hill country lewis we didn't discuss where the where the actual estate is in particular
2: i am uh south of wimberley as the crow flies uh, near the thriving metropolis of Startsville, Texas, uh, <laughs> and after a few glasses of wine, that's called Smartsville sometimes. <laughs> but uh, so it's uh, I'm about an hour from Austin. Okay, wonderful. And near Canyon Lake.
0: And uh, and you do receive folks at the winery hours and whatnot are on your website. Yes. Uh, yeah. And that is La Cruz de dot com, I believe. Right. Excellent. And, um, you've got some cool stuff there. Um, it's tricky though, because you make such a small amount of wine and you make kind of different wines every year, depending on what you get, correct me if I'm wrong. And so, um, it's almost a moving target to put, you know, what actually wines that you, that you have in the cellar on the website. Um, and, and correct me if I'm wrong there.
2: Yeah, no, it's, uh, every year is a different year. Um, Uh, A lot of people have uh, raw materials available to them uh, where they can pretty much uh, do something similar every year. I just have a small three-acre vineyard, which is now 17 years old. And since 2011, I've just been making wine exclusively from that vineyard because I want to make wine that's truly and authentically reflective of my region, my soils, my environment. Uh, Texas is a big place. It's about the size of France, uh, coincidentally, and uh, I, I think uh, it's it's very important for people to find out what works well on. On their property. But for me, uh, every year is different. Uh, Mother Nature uh, has mood swings. And so <laughs> I, I tell people when I make wine, it's kind of like those Food Channel uh, shows where they give you a bag and you have to use what's in the bag. Uh, <laughs> every year I have to do react to what I'm being given. Right. And, and, and most years are different.
0: Can you walk us through some of the things that might happen on a given year that might change your... Uh, Way of thinking about things, or um, you know, what are those variables that might change those elements inside the bag?
2: Well, what again? It's a matter of reacting. What I try to do is—I is learned uh, this when I was living in France. Uh, in a in a year that's conducive to it, I will try to do a green harvest, which is you go through and you you take some fruit off the vines. Way before it's early. In the case of black Spanish, it's still green. It looks like small, hard lime green English peas. <laughs> and I'll go through the vineyard. Of course, I've got bird netting over the rows, so it's that's very labor intensive. I don't do machine harvest, um, so you have to undo the netting, oh go through, take you know, uh, make sure each plant's balanced. That's basically what I'm doing. But with that, uh, that first. Uh, picking, if you will, of a green harvest, I make uh, a product called verjus, which is French for green juice. Uh, and I sell the verjus to chefs. Uh, sometimes I give it to chefs uh, that are very grateful to get it. I sell it to restaurants, uh, uh, one in particular in Houston that, uh, that makes really high-end cocktails from it. If you like lemon juice or grapefruit juice, uh, you'll love this.
0: Yes, d- describe what Verjou is. I mean, a, a little bit the characteristics because some folks might not know.
2: It's like, a, at least mine from the Black Spanish, is like a cross between lemon juice and grapefruit juice with... It has this zesty, oily sort of character. It's great to cook with. It's great to make drinks with. And it doesn't have that acetic bacter quality that vinegar has. Now... I've been doing this a long time, and I love to cook too. But uh, I've 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 yet to meet a vinegar that really got along well with wine, even even in salads and things. So, if you want to do a lobster salad and have a beautiful Chardonnay or something or other white wine with it, and you use verjus with olive oil, then you, it's it's going to go. It's it's not going to knock the wine out of the game. So it's a it's a very useful, valuable product. But it's like that's one of the first things I do as a green harvest, not with the idea of leaving the, uh, the, the clusters on the ground. No, I use them, right. and I make a beautiful, different product right. with it. And then I'll go through, uh, if I, in a year that's conducive to it, like I said, and do a, uh, another picking early with the idea of making a rosé or something from the rosé of black Spanish, and then I'll do several pickings. Even though I'm, I'm making a red wine, I'll do several pickings. The first picking will be aiming more for acidity, although the sugars are beautiful, and the last picking uh, has really high sugars. Uh, maybe maybe 26, 27 bricks, uh, uh, which is a measure of sugar to volume of of liquid. Uh, and so it's, it's, in that sense, it's kind of like cooking because you're picking for attributes and you just really can't do that. If you declare one harvest and machine pick it, you, you, you get what you get and you take everything, whether it's ripe or not.
0: Do you keep those components separate until, uh, you, you, you taste them individually and then decide, okay, well, I'm going to blend this, this, and this and make this wine, et cetera. Exactly. Yeah. What um I love that you're doing a verjus because I um I am a huge fan as you say as a salad dressing it just works uh, so much better than than vinegar in, in my opinion wonderful how do you um so so that that let's delve into the winemaking side of things and this concept of natural wine because I think. Some folks out there might not know all of the the manipulation or 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 things tricks that might be employed inside the winery, and then sometimes people know a lot about wine and they might be critical of natural wines because they might be you know funky or et cetera. What what are your what are your thoughts on that?
2: Well, my uh, not just my thoughts. I mean, my my. Experience. I've, yeah. I've been doing this uh, since 2001 here, and I've had a lot of wine that Tony Katuri made, and he's been doing it for closer to 50 years. Um, it's very clear to me that wine uh, can make itself. It's, it would be grandstanding for me to say, uh, "Really, I'm a winemaker." I consider myself a custodian of another phase of the vineyard. Grapes want to be wine. They want to ferment. Everything wants to ferment. So. Uh, I let the wine make itself. Literally, I do. And I I somewhat kiddingly tell people the the reason why natural winemaking or making unprocessed wine is such a good fit for me is you don't need to know anything. (laughs) Uh, But really, we pick the grapes by hand. and, And to touch upon what we were talking about earlier, when you do a green harvest, when you do multiple pickings of the same grape, it's like jettisoning cargo off a plane what's what's left as you go along gets more and more concentrated and ripens more and more fully. So you're allowing it an opportunity to be everything it can be. So we pick the grapes by hand. We let them uh, we crush them, let them ferment in the case of red wines in an open bin. I add no yeast, nothing whatsoever. They ferment spontaneously on the wild native yeast. And what are some other, uh, some winemakers might make other additions, not just yeast, right? Yeah, they'll, they'll, uh, they'll add yeast, they'll add enzymes and proteins. Uh, they uh, they uh, will make adjustments for acid almost always early on. And, you know, that's fine, different strokes for different folks. Sure. Uh, uh, what I do, I'm not saying what I do is better, wine is such a subjective thing, but I, I think what I do is markedly different yeah. from what other people do. And I think what comes out the other end is very different. And one point I want to make it, I mean, you, you can make wine naturally, unprocessed is maybe a, a better word. The trade-off is is that these wines are literally alive. They right. have bacteria. They have microbial life. And they need to be cared for responsibly. That's the reason. I mean, people ask me, why don't more people do what you do? And I said, well, the simple answer is they don't want to. Right. And the reason they don't want to is that, My wines require some responsibility on the part of the consumer to care for them and to present them and to understand them. Most processed wines, uh, that's taken out of the equation, and it's commercially uh, probably a better idea. So how does that
0: come into play in, in the day-to-day? I mean, is it sulfites are often added, which you do not, for stability, shelf life, et cetera. Um, and, but, but you tackle that problem in other ways because the wines are certainly ageable. Uh, as, as we saw uh, out in the lobby, we tasted a, a wine from 2006 and still super fresh And after it was opened a couple days. And, uh, and, and as you said, and I agree, that that tells you that the wine could age even longer.
2: Yeah, I, uh, we call sulfites preservatives, I do not have a scientific uh, brain, uh, that side of my brain doesn't <laughs> hook up with the, other, with the rest of it, but uh, as I said, I don't need to know that because I'm not going to do it anyway, but we call sulfites preservatives, they're not, they don't really give life, they, they kill things, they are to us, uh, they are to wine like antibiotics are to us. If you have an infection, a doctor is not going to say, "Go fill this prescription for preservatives." Uh, the the antibiotics are going to kill things, and that's what that's what sulfites do. They kill things. They they. It's like uh, a lot of people will add sulfites to to leave a wine where it is. I mean, okay, we like where it is. But it's like taking a freeze frame from a a motion picture this we like this wine where it is let's make sure it stays there I don't want that I want when you open a bottle of my wine I want it to be a motion picture I don't want it to be an 8 by 10 black and white glossy and I and it will be a motion picture and it'll and it'll you'll see the full run and it'll be a great experience if you've taken care of the wine like I have if if you're not going to do that then you shouldn't you shouldn't have wines like this I mean, and that's not to say my my wine's not going to turn to fufu dust overnight if you don't have a cave like i do to store it in right. but if you're going to buy a 60 or 70 dollar bottle of handcrafted wine why, why play around with it why not why not go to a scratch and dent place and get a two hundred dollar wine refrigerator to keep them properly? So, so the,
0: the the real consumer responsibility is just that the temperature control, or the or are there other things?
2: Well, there's. I mean, you want to keep wine in a cool, dark place with the proper humidity, and it's easy to, easy to look up uh, what proper uh, right. storage of wine is. And uh, in fact, I had I had I had somebody. Uh, Called me about a year ago and say we bought uh, three bottles of your wine uh, uh, three years ago actually three bottles three years ago and we opened them up all up uh, last night and they weren't good and uh, I said really What'd you where'd you store them they said in our refrigerator I said you mean your thirty eight degree refrigerator? And they said, yes. I said, well, uh, you got a computer, don't you? They said, yeah. I said, you know how to use Google, don't you? They said, yeah. I said, well, uh, Google storing wine in a refrigerator and then call me back. And they called me back in about 15 minutes They said, we really screwed up, didn't we? I said, yeah, you really did. That's So you can you can kill wine by leaving it in a Refrigerator, refrigerator, too long. Just as easily as you can, by putting it in your attic all summer long. Right. So.
0: Do you think vibrations or have anything to do with that as well? I mean, these some of these wine refrigerators have certain special dampeners on their uh, on their compressors to, to limit the vibration, etc.
2: Yeah, I think that's. Uh, I don't think that's as significant as light and temperature. The, the temperature. Yeah, but it's something to consider. If you really want to be meticulous, you'll put your shelves on inch thick. Rubber like uh, like your tires are made out of uh, (laughs) uh, all all kinds of crazy things. right? Yeah.
0: Well, um, so you you, you talk about this, this idea that the wine is alive and that there is bacteria, you know, natural bacteria. That's and I love this metaphor of the motion picture. I love Mm it. And uh, so w- what does that kind of translate to in the flavor of the wine? How do you, how do you taste those things?
2: Uh, another analogy I use is that since in, in no, uh, at, at no point along the way of my process do I kill any aspect of the wine. That's like taking voices out of the choir. I'm not looking for a soloist. I, don't, I mean, I love Elvis, but I don't want Elvis to be coming out of the bottle. I want a choir. And as, as you know, that's the beautiful thing about a choir because one voice uh, helps another and, and, and they, they work together synergistically. Um, and so that's... I find that when you leave all the voices in the choir that you're going to have multiple tiers of flavors and particularly aromatics. Uh, I think, uh, you know, there's a... There's a lot of wine in the marketplace that if you really put your nose in the glass, you're smelling blackberry juice and vanilla oak. And, you know, in certain circumstances, that can be a welcome uh, right. thing. But, but uh, I, I think that if you leave all the voices in the choir, that you're going to have a more complex and particularly aromatically wine on your hands. Yeah, absolutely. The homogenization of wine is possible with
0: technology, and it's happening all over. And, uh, you know, I, I taste a lot of a lot of wines from a lot of places around the world that they're just, oh, it's all the same. There's nothing to distinguish this wine from, from the next, and and that's not making a wine from a place.
2: That's, a, and, and, and there is, today there is a concept of a so-called international style of wine, and that is this: you've got consultants and winemakers going all over the globe, telling people this is how you, this is how we make Cabernet or whatever it is, whether it's in Chile, whether it's in Australia, whether it's in France, wherever it is, um, the wines, the wines have the same earmarks of quality because they're doing the same thing with very different raw materials. So I, you know, if you really want to get the most out of a place, uh, the best way to do it is to, is to not mess with it. And it's, but as we know, not just in winemaking, but in life, sometimes the hardest thing in the world is to sit there and do nothing. Uh, (laughs) most people, you know, uh, it's, uh, they just can't do that. Uh, and they can't resist having the toys and, and playing with them and I've found it's in at least what I do uh, I found it's not necessary but I on the other hand I, I you know I don't have any aversion to money I spend a lot of it but that's not what motivates me
0: <laughs> right, right I want to
2: make a wine that is truly unique uh, and I don't you know if I make 50 cases of a wine I've got 50 cases worth of trust and whatever person out there might buy it. Right. I don't have 50,000 cases worth of trust in the consumer. Right. So I might be doing what other people would be doing too if, if I was driven by money uh, because in the end, that's the best way to protect your investment. But I I make such small amounts of wine that, that I can invite the consumer right. to be responsible just as I am and do their part.
0: Right. Um, wonderful. If you're just tuning in, my name is Mark Raishup. This is another bottle down the show about wine and the wine industry. And we're here talking with Lewis Dixon from Cruz de Comal, uh, the, the steward of, of his property. Um, and it's a pleasure to hear these concepts. There's so many different divergent, uh, philosophies in the wine industry. And as Lewis says, there's not one that's better or the other, but, um, but, but different styles and different flavors for different folks. And, um, and well, wonderful. We've got uh, about 10 minutes left, and uh, we could talk all day about, about these wines. And let's delve into, into some of the varieties that you do, kind of that, that you like to make on kind of a regular basis. Um, uh, this rose. So, do you make, you said that you make a still wine of Blanc de Bois and also a fortified?
2: Yeah, I make a, I started the first uh, sort of crispy still Blanc de Bois I made was in 2004. Um, I call that wine, it's a proprietary name, Petard Blanc, which means white firecracker in French. Uh, And when I was living in France, uh, I I joined with some friends, a little tasting group, and we would meet in Marseille once a month. And I was just learning to speak a little French, but at at the first couple of tastings, uh, every now and then one of the tasters would throw their head back and go, oh, petard! And I asked a friend of mine, what what does that mean? And he said, well, that means, uh, literally means firecracker, but in the context of wine, uh, a typical French person would use the word petard to describe a wine they thought was explosive on the palate. And so uh, I I was taken by the beautiful acidity in this wine and the minerality, and that kind of came... To mine, and I, so I called it Petard Blanc. So that's that's one wine I make. Another wine I make that's uh, an after dinner wine that's fortified. I call a pray, which is French for afterwards. Uh, and uh, the 2012 has a sub name called Coup de Gras, which, as we all know, is the the final crowning blow in a merciful way. There's your hint. Uh, it's after dinner, and this is the coup de gras. Um, and that wine, I kind of got the idea to make that wine from, From I may have mentioned this earlier, but uh, uh, Muscat Baume de Venise, which is made from muscat, which is in, is in the parentage of Blanc Dubois, which I thought was a natural transition. This year, I'm playing around with my take on a vermouth. Uh, it's a it's a wine that I'm going to call Shango, Naranja Exclusiva, and, and uh, Shang Shango is a nickname that uh, my childhood friend Billy Gibbons and ZZ Top gave me. He grew up across the street from me. So, uh, and Naranja Exclusiva is Spanish for exclusive orange, and this is the first with this particular wine because it's going to be a be a Vermouth style. I for the first time fermented. The Blanc du Bois on the skins and stems and the, the sort of the aromatics and some of the color tone of the wine is orange and there's you can Google orange wine there's kind of a, a fad uh, with a lot of natural wine producers making white wine that's fermented on the skins and stems and so it makes texturally the wine's a little more tannic and has a little more color even an orange kind of a tone to it and and you see that that works particularly well with blanc de bois yeah i mean yeah, it's, it's the first cool. year it's the first year i've done it but i'm i'm real happy uh, yeah. with with what i've done and i've I've have stuck the the wine thief you know the little the little glass pipe for pulling wine out for tasting and I've let a few people whose palates I trust and sure. their eyebrows went north in a positive way so you know, well so. that's
0: great I mean that that could be cool because there's enough acidity to blanc de Bois to to take on some of that um, or buffer that that time that it spends on the stems and the skins
2: yeah and if it if it does pick up a little a little tannic or a little bitter quality in that type of a wine in a vermouth style wine is that you, that's welcome addition so
0: that is very cool i want to hear about the rest of the wines uh that you're making but we do need to take a short break uh here's some final announcements and then we'll be back uh, with some thoughts to wrap up our hour here with lewis dixon from cruz de Camal winery All right, my name is Mark Raishup. This is another Bottle Down on Co-op Radio. We've got a few minutes left with Louis Dixon from Cruz de Comal Winery here in the Hill Country and uh, south of Wimberley. And um, so we were we were we were going through the wines that Louis makes and uh, talking about uh, some of the whites from Blanc de Bois, um, the black Spanish, this rosé. Do you make that pretty regularly year to year? Uh,
2: the rosé... Um I've really only released the, just the, strictly the rosé from the black Spanish in 2012. Um, I've used the rosé uh, for other things. Uh, for instance, I, I haven't bottled it yet, but I've got some Madeira that I'm working on. But that's about a five- or six-year project. Uh, but that's 100% from black Spanish rosé. I make a beautiful, um, very richly colored uh uh, dry red wine from black Spanish, which I call Troubadour. Mm. Uh, that's again, a proprietary name. It's 100% estate grown black Spanish. I made some other Troubadours in prior years that from grapes that I sourced from a vineyard near Fredericksburg, but beginning in 2011, any wine I make called Troubadour is going to be hundred percent black Spanish from my vineyard. Um, and it's, again, I don't do anything to this. There's nothing added to it. It's just pure black Spanish grape and, uh,
0: fermented for a long time. Then do you barrel age it? Uh, cause that's a tricky thing, you know, with no sulfites and whatnot.
2: Yeah, actually, uh, I, I, and I don't mind everybody I talk to in the industry or otherwise, I don't, I mean. My secrets are I have no secrets. I, if, <laughs> if you can do a better job at what I'm doing than I, I can by me telling you, then more power to you. But I think one of the keys to black Spanish is to press it early. And it's a good question. You asked, for it to ferment uh, more than half its fermentation in an oak barrel. And it continues that fermentation for probably five months, at which time I rack it and then I, I'll decide I'll have different barrels that, you know, maybe from the... The, the third picking, if you will, the mm-hmm. first two were green harvest. Maybe the second picking was for the rosé. Then the third picking, I will press those separately, uh, and I, I do press them early. So they, most of the fermentation is done, uh, more than halfway done, in the barrel. And again, I, knew, I use wild native yeast. I've never had commercial yeast on my property Uh, If you really want to do if if you strictly want to say you do wild yeast fermentations and then that's what you Should have done from the start because if you start using commercial yeast and then you say well I'd like to switch over and do what these people are doing and not add yeast The reality is is that the commercial yeasts that are ambient in your winery and dominant over the typical wild yeast are probably what's going to be doing the fermentation So, But I don't have to worry about that because I've never had any commercial yeast on my property. So the Troubadour is a a very, very interesting wine. The 2013 was 14.6 alcohol, native yeast fermentation. The 2014, uh, 14.8 alcohol. Um, The uh, 16 and 17 are going to be really good. I just bottled the 16 uh, a while back. Um, and the 17 2017 was a great year for for me and I think most people in the hill country and I hear even in the high plains it was a, a just a really good year
0: yeah can in our last couple minutes can we can we elaborate on that a little bit more just in terms yeah. of everything when when went positively right? yeah well you
2: know every you know uh, the high plains have their share of problems that that maybe we don't have all the time and vice versa but Uh, It seems like up there they've uh, they've got sometimes uh, have to deal with hail which we don't seem to have to deal with as much here in the hill country but it's always great when you can get past March and April without a freeze. I mean, if you, if we don't have a freeze, then we're we're halfway home. And then the next thing is is to, it's okay to have some rain in the spring, but we don't want rain in in, uh, in June and July and August to speak of. I'd rather not have a drop of rain than too much of it. Um, and this year, uh, it was it was just fine. The rain uh, behaved itself and stayed away and. Uh, so you don't have mildew problems, and you don't have uh, dilution. Uh, the The plants kind of know where they're going. If you have intermittent rains or constant rains, it's confusing to the plant. Right. Uh, they don't know whether to turn the corner or stay put or sit down. Or so. Uh, I, I I think uh, 2017, from from what I've heard, and certainly for me, was a was a very very good year. And I, I mentioned this to you earlier. Normally, when you get twice as many grapes, the quality's half as good and uh, in, a, in a really good year you, you can get uh, a, a really bountiful crop without sacrificing the quality. Yeah.
0: So. Well, that does it for us today. Lewis Dixon, thank you so much for coming into the co-op studios and being on the show. Uh, We'll follow you and uh, keep on enjoying your wines. I'm really looking forward to uh, seeing what the vineyard does over time.
2: Thank you, Mark. Appreciate you having me.
0: Absolutely. This has been another Bottle Down on Co-op Radio. Stay tuned for People's Republic of Austin uh, and keep it pegged to co-op for the rest of the afternoon programming and on into the evening. Wonderful stuff here. And big thanks to all of the the donors who came out to the pickup party. It was great fun. Uh, that'll do us for for us today. So stay tuned for the People's Republic of Austin.